Hello, welcome to I Love Rock and Roll. I'm Ken Krantz. And I am Chip Chantry. Oh, so excited. I just I jumped right in, buddy. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> we have a we have a really cool guest today. So yes, we do. Let's just jump right in. Our guest I don't I don't want to talk to you, Ken. I want to get right to this. I know. Like, I know. Yeah. Well, we we talked we talked for a minute off air, and I'm already super excited for these stories. Yep. Um, I am, uh, I'm just going off Wikipedia, so forgive me if I get any of this wrong, but our guest today, uh, is a professional recording, uh, uh, studio drummer, touring drummer. Uh, he has, he's been playing forever. Let me, Chip, let me just read you a list of some of the artists that he's played with. Okay. Aretha Franklin, Carly Simon, Steely Dan, James Taylor. Paul Simon, John Lennon, uh, Daryl Hall and John Oates. You know, they don't like when you get that wrong. Stevie Nicks, Roy Orbison, Quincy Jones, Peter Frampton, Jackson Brown, Al Cooper, who I want to talk to you about because uh, he, he, I think he used to live next door to my parents, to my mom. Waylon Jennings, Randy Newman, Peter Gabriel. Uh, the list goes on and on. Warren I'll, I'll be honest. I, I think I've heard like, I've heard one or two of those names before. I think. I think I've heard one. Uh, you, you might as well just literally just list the people he hasn't played with. I think that's what it is. That's the most incredible list I've ever heard. It's it is crazy. Welcome, Rick Murata, to the show. Uh, it's good to be here. It's good to see you guys. Yeah, thank you so much for doing this. Um, My pleasure. I so I was reading something about you yesterday that you were asked to join a band as a drummer at 19 or 20 before you had ever played drums in your life? It, it's, um, it was, it's, it's a little bit different than that, but yes, I was, uh, um, my parents were dancers. I was a dancer. And, um, one of the guys I grew up with, who was also very, very actually he called me yesterday. He's a very well-known, um, uh, brilliant guitar player. He started when he was really young. His name is David Spinoza. We grew up together and he was also a dancer and we met at a dance contest actually. And he was an incredible guitar player, but a re really, he was a really great dancer. And he said to me one day, man, he goes, you have such great rhythm. If you played drums, I'd hire you in my band. So his drummer a guy named Billy Reed got drafted into the army and we were all close friends. And I said to Billy, what are you going to do with your drums when you go away? He goes, well, I don't know. And I said, well, I'll hold on to him while you're out, out at, uh, when you were in the, you know, when you go, okay, great. So I took his drums to my house and started playing. And two months later, two weeks later, I sat in with the first band. I remember I sat in with um, my friend Dave's band and I think I played Mustang Sally. Andy Newmark was the drummer and he was a close friend of mine. He said, why don't you play? And then two months later, I had a gig in the band as the drummer. And then that was how I started playing drums. That's incredible. Now, did you do, do you think that your rhythm as a dancer did did that really carry over? Yeah, it's all it's the only reason mm -hmm. that I had any success at all. It wasn't because of smarts. It wasn't because of good business sense. It wasn't because of of uh, of ambition. Uh, it was because I had that talent. I had good time and rhythm mm -hmm. and it, it translated right to the drums and it worked. Did you did you fall in love with the drums and were like this is yeah. what I'm doing or did was it just kind of like oh I got a gig I got another gig I got another gig? Uh, no, I I got I, I had no direction at all. I had already been uh, I've been in college. It was in my second year of college, I think, and I and I and I had no idea what I was going to do. Seriously, none. And uh, I ended up quitting school to play drums because I got so into it. Then my I was I was kind of at my parents' house. And they just threw me, just said, get out. You want to be a musician? You'll be a bum. And, right. and, and the next thing you know, I was, that's it. I was making, you know, sometimes 15 bucks a night, sometimes less. Mm -hmm. And I couldn't have been happier. Yeah. And this was in New York? Yeah. 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 I was at first, it started in Westchester in New York, outside the city. And then when I got tossed, I found, well, Andy Newmark and I both, uh, got rooms in this little sleazy hotel called the Bevan Hotel in Larchmont, New York. We had a room playing $35 a week, barely making our rent. And um, and uh, and then New York City after that. And then it just, you know, at that time, 
the business was different. I don't know. You guys are young guys, but I don't know how it is in the in the in, in your business. But at that time, everything was word of mouth. There was no social media. So, you know, social media was you're out there. It was like it was like Pony Express. You're out playing a gig. Somebody sees you playing in a band. You're opening for an act somewhere. And a lot of times the guys in the act you're opening for would come up and say, hey, man, that sounded, that was really good. You want to, you think about playing with us. And, you know, so you stepped up that ladder and then or someone would see you playing at a gig and say, Could, would you play on my record? So mm-hmm. that's, that's how it was then. Now I have no idea what the business is like. Yeah. And that's because, and it changes and comedy, I think very much in the same way it, it changes so much and it's, I feel like every year it changes differently, but I, I feel like at least when I started too, it is that word of mouth, at least among comedians of like, oh, I opened for a guy. He'd like me. So he's going to book me for something else. Somebody sees me on a show. It's it's not that magic formula of like, here's where I made it. It's just those right. little baby steps. Right. Yeah. Which is why being, uh, I don't know how it is with musicians, but with, with comedy, it's why being a good hang is almost as important as as being really good at comedy. If, if you know, you- it's that's funny you should say that. That is that I enjoyed playing with guys that were great to hang out with and weren't as great a player. Yep. Than guys who were asshole. Can you say asshole? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we've yeah. we've said that worse. were really good. There were really good players that were just not not fun to be around. Right, exactly. Or or you know, and and again this is in both comedy and music, but it's like if I have to book somebody or you know work with somebody, it's like I think the first thing I think of is like A are they a good hang? And also B like are they going to show up on time? Are they going to be wasted? Are they going to be you, yeah. you know, are they going to be professional? Can I rely on them? Are, are yeah. they going to flake on me? And then third, it's like, are they talented? You know, I think that's that comes down. You know, I, th- I think a lot of people forget that they think, oh, well, my art's going to speak for me. I can just be. It's like, no, it's not going to not going to work. There's the well, business end of show business. Well, listen, speaking to that, being like me, I was in bands when I started, where we were bands, and then uh, one band I was in, we broke up, and I said. I remember my dad said to me, Rick, you're only as strong as the weakest link. You know, that old cliche. Yep. But if you're in a band of four guys, there's there's four links in that chain. If you're in a band with 10 guys, there's 10 links in that chain. Those chains are going to fall apart. You know, I was seeing something the other day. The conflict is conflict is the cornerstone of a great band. Well, for me, it wasn't. So I went out on my own. And as a freelancer, I did a lot of records and a lot of touring with a lot of big artists. Yeah. Sometimes... I got to where I would turn gigs down tours with big artists that paid a lot of money for that very reason. A, not a great hang, the artist. B, you don't know. I did tours where we didn't even know if the guy was going to, you know, if the, if the artist was going to be able to come up on stage because of either being fucked up, you know, either drugs, yeah. alcohol, being late. You know, there's a lot of that. You work for those people. It's even worse. But, you know, you just sit there and you go, okay, is this my life? Am I, you know, I'm putting my career in someone else's hands. I was very, very lucky because I was always so independent. And I had these it's – a, it's a conflict. You know, you're really independent on one hand, and you have these really close friends that are really successful. Like my friend Dave would call me and say, Rick, I'm going to go out. We're going to do this little tour. You're doing it. Okay, I would, it wasn't even like, do you want to do it? it was, mm-hmm. You're going to do it. I'm going to do this like, you're doing it. Because I knew it was going to be good. Yeah, right. I knew. I knew. It doesn't matter who the artist was. It was going to be a good artist. I knew it was going to be good, the guys I was with. And then other times, you're just like, I don't know. You know, you get a call out of the blue, and you really have to think about it. Yeah. It's, um, yeah, it's, I, I guess there's got to be something kind of freeing in, it being somebody else's responsibility, you know, like this major tour is put together and, and you're the hired guy and, and you, the only thing you got to worry about is punching in and out every night. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But we all took it. I, I, the guy, I, my general thing was we took it very seriously. For example, 
you mentioned some people. You mentioned Quincy Jones. Mm-hmm. So if I were playing with Quincy, I'd show up. And, of course, we all know how insanely talented and, and, and a great guy he is. I haven't worked with him in years, but back then we'd show up. There's a chart. You're reading the music. You're playing the music. But there are other bands when I was when I was doing albums with Zevon and Linda Ronstadt, James Taylor, Jackson Brown, any of that stuff. There's no charts. We're writing our own stuff. We're all it was always and we're touring with those same people. Yeah. So so it was way, way more a band mentality when we walked into a recording studio and we took it very seriously because. It wasn't like you're walking in and the music is written, you're playing that, and the onus is not on you. This is, you walk in, you're playing this piece of music, your name is on that record, and people look at it and say, or listen to it and see your name and say, he played, that's what he came up with? Or, wow, he came up with that. That's really good. And so you, it, it's a it's a bit of, if you, if, you know, I'm responding to what you're saying about, the onus being on them, it can go both ways. You know, sometimes right. it's really, you're part of an ensemble, even though you're not making them say, if we, if we were doing sort of Madison square garden, or uh, I remember when I was touring with Peter Frampton, we did, uh, we did only stadiums, you know, hundred and something thousand people you get paid. Okay. We're not getting a piece of that money, right. A piece mm-hmm. of that door, but, but, I took it very seriously. You know, if you, if you screw up up there, there's there's a hundred, there's 80 to a hundred thousand people going, did you hear that backbeat? He missed that. Yeah. I would think especially I did it. You know, that's, there's a, there's a lot of guys like that though, too. Oh yeah. I would think especially as the drummer, it's, it's hard to, uh, cause that's sort of driving the entire engine. Right. Yeah. Well, if you ever see a drummer stop playing in the middle of a song, you know, that the song, there's something wrong. I mean, you can even get a guitar player could stop playing and you go, oh, okay, it's still ch- chugging along. Right. But drumming stops playing and the whole thing starts to fall apart. Do you have, did you have a preference of those? And I'm sure everybody's different, but where you come into, let's say, studio and you're recording an album or you're recording a track, do you prefer to have that? Uh, that sheet music, you know, the charts just handed down to you and you know exactly what you're doing, or do you prefer to have more of that uh, collaborative feel to it? Um, I, I could be very specific about this. I worked my, when s- someone gives me a chart, I always like getting a chart because I'll write something. I'll write something out anyway. If they just play us music, a lot of guys will write it out. But if you give me what we call a map, a roadmap, you know, lead sheet. Like you could give the guitar player, me and the guitar player, the same chart. We're looking at the same chart. We're going to mark it. Okay. So if you give me a chart, I would look at it as, since you guys are in the business, I'm sure you've acted before you've seen scripts and sides and things like that. I look at it as a script. And my job is to read that script create a musical character. This is the way I look oh, at it. That's so interesting. Yeah. Create a character for that script. And I'm going to read those lines, let's say, the way I'm going to read them. And sometimes you can sound, they can be really good. And sometimes it can be really bad. But it's your, it's my job to bring that character to the composer's vision. And I expect the same. When I write something, when I write stuff out, very rarely write specific music. Excuse me. I often will write these, uh, I'll write a melody line or something and I'll write the chord changes and I'll hand it to somebody and what they bring to the table. These are guys I know really well, you know, um, Wadi Wachtel and Spinoza and guys like that. And Neil Steubenhaus or my brother, anybody like that. They, they bring this personality. They know what they're doing. I don't even have to think twice about it. All I have to do is go, that's great. Try something else there. That's great. And th- that's how I hope to be. By the way, sometimes it's it's a miss. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I prefer, I prefer I like a I like a map and then leave me to, to interpret that map the way to create inside yeah. that map. Yes. Oh, that's great. 
Uh, I it, was. Oh, go ahead, Chip. I was just going to say, uh, do, do you prefer live to studio? Like if you had to if you had to pick one, you're, you're only going to do studio. You're only going to do live. Oh, uh, that's a really tough question. I, yeah. I, it's like, which who's your favorite child? Um, sure. It's it's very different. I did so many, as you read there, that's just the tip of the iceberg of the, of the recording I've done. You know, the expression we used to use, you kiss a lot of frogs. There are a lot of albums and records and, and sessions and things that we did that didn't go anywhere. Mm-hmm. Every day we were in recording studios and also a lot of jingles. You're there all the time. It gets to be work. Yeah, It mm-hmm. really becomes a drag. By the same token, being on the road for two years at a time sometimes. I was on the road once for two years. I was home for two weeks, two to three weeks in two years because I was working with like three different artists at the same time and doing either. And I was living in New York, but I was either in L.A. doing an album. It's too much. Mm-hmm. So I love playing live. Right now I have a band with my brother, Jerry Murata, and we play the Murata Brothers went before COVID hit and even a little bit this last year on Martha's Vineyard, where I spend summers. Mm -hmm. um, We play every week at this place called the PA club, the Portuguese America club. It's the greatest. This girl, Joanne Cassidy sings with us. She's unbelievably good. Unbelievable. She's as good as any singer I've worked with. Mm -hmm. The band is great. And we have a ball. I love doing that. I'd rather do that than be playing on somebody's record. But if some if a friend of mine asks me to play drums on their record, I like doing that too. What I don't like is being I don't know if I'm answering your question. But no, no, this is great. At this point in my my personal career, I you can't get me in a recording studio every day. I'd lose my mind. Sure. And you can't get me to go on the road for six months. I'd lose my mind. Yeah. Now I know other guys that that are on the road all the time. Like a very close friend of mine, I'm going to go see him this week. Is Steve Gad, who's a, a brilliant. Real, one of the top drummers in the world right now. He's and we we came up together in New York. We played together in bands. He's he's out on the road now. If he's not on the road with James Taylor or Eric Clapton, he's got his own band out on mm-hmm. the road. She's doing right now in Los Angeles, playing at Catalina's this week. <clears throat> so, you know, I just don't. I say to him, I say, Steve, how do you do it? And he just says, Well, the kids need new shoes. So. <laughs> It's good motivation. Yeah. I, you said something before about um, if you're in the studio too long and, and it starts to feel like work. I, I don't think people understand how the creative mind works. Like the minute something feels like work, it, it just, even though you're doing the coolest thing, <laughs> you know, even even though you might be in the studio with, you know, whoever, uh it's I, I find the same thing on stage sometimes, you know, it's it's like you're you're just this feels like work. It feels like pulling teeth. And it's it's like well, you guys, you guys, are, you do stand up. Right. But I would assume almost every stand up I know out here, but I'm you know, when I'm in Los Angeles for the times that I'm in Los Angeles, the comics that I know out here, every one of them is a writer. They all yep. write. Yep. And they're in the writer's room which I find to be amazing. I love being in a writer's room with, with, with comics because it's one joke after another, but that becomes work for them. Yeah, yes. It's painful. Like if you guys, I don't know if you guys ever are in a writer's room together. Like if you collaborate, a lot of comics are, are very singular people. A lot of comics are very like, they like get in a room, like Kindler used to go into a room for his act and he'd come out with a stack of cards and sometimes he would go out and warm up the audience and he'd be throwing cards away. But <laughs> jokes that worked and jokes that didn't work, if it worked, he'd put it back. I'd see him take a card, do a joke, and it'd be great. He'd still toss it. It didn't work for him. That's painful. Yeah. It's work. That's hard work. Mm-hmm. I think people think you wake up in the morning and go, God, I'm so funny. I just thought of six jokes it was so easy while I was sleeping. I wrote them down. It's great. I'm going to go do them tonight at the club. It's not that easy. I, I, I know that. Yeah. And it's, I, I think one of the things that I learned, especially when I started writing, I've written on a couple of TV shows to where I, I've learned that it's a numbers game and that I can't treat every joke. Cause I used to, when, when I started comedy, 
and still today, I still treat every joke as a as a baby. And it's like, it's a numbers game. It's like, right. I'm going to write 20 jokes today. And if five of them work, then it's like, I got my job done. And it's, See, it's hard you to do it the first. Secret. That's the yeah. secret. You can't be married. That's it's right. the same thing. When I first started playing, you know, on records and things like that, or live, somebody, if I played something I thought was really great, and they said, you know, I'm not sure if I like that. Fuck you. I like it. That's all that matters. I'm the one that's playing now you don't like it i'll play something else <laughs> well, and, and that's exactly right like uh a couple years ago i was so i live in philadelphia but i was in los angeles for a couple of months writing on a show through the winter and it, even if it was a bad day i would just remind myself i'm getting paid every week to sit in burbank at 70 degree weather and write ridiculous jokes like i'm just happy to be here so yeah. i'm just gonna throw everything i can against the wall and i'm i'm fine with that yeah. Well, not that it's not guys, stressful sometimes, but did you guys watch the Beatles documentary? Yes. Yeah. I, I um, did. I don't think Chip has. I, I haven't. I haven't yet. I need to. I do need to sit down and watch it. Oh, man. You have to watch it. And I'll tell you when I watched it, I got so many calls that I had to watch it. I mean, one after another, after another, after another. People call me. Did you see it? Did you see it? No. no okay. I'm going to watch it. <laughs> Even my assistant and her husband were watching it and, 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 and saying, you, you know, I should watch it. So I, I ended up watching it. And I have to tell you, it was great. And Ken, you'll, you'll know, you'll know what I'm talking about because you saw it. It's, it's, you watch it. And I thought to myself, I've been in that room so many times. And I was watching Ringo if you watch the document documentary, Ringo most of the time is like this. He may as well be asleep yeah. because it's the other guys are all, it's this collaboration happens over there. The drummer is sitting there actually observing. Meanwhile, when, as soon as he started playing, everything sort of gelled and came together, in my opinion. And I had so much more, I've always respected, I had respect for Ringo before that, but I had so much more respect for him after that because of his patience and his ability to to connect with the music when john and paul were writing or when george was trying to contribute yeah. it's a tough space to be in yes and and if you watch that if you watch that documentary you'll see for me that was the hardest part to watch because it was it was almost boring to me. It was always like, like I've seen enough of this. I've spent half of my career in that room, <laughs> in a recording studio. And sometimes it was with John Lennon yeah. sitting right there. You know, we're working on a song and Lennon's playing and we're all, you know, it's like, Huey, play this guitar part and this guy play that guy. And I'm just going to play boom, bap, boom, bap. I'm not going to, I'm not redesigning the space shuttle. I'm going to play. Yeah. I'm going to lock in time and do that kind of shit. So, 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 uh, yeah, it's interesting. The, the processes for creative process for people on the outside, it's, it's, I, you know what I stick to normally when people talk to me about it is I'll, I know what they want to hear. They want to hear about the glamour, right? How were the chicks? What were the drugs like? Did you drink a lot? Was it, what's this guy like? Um, what's Steely Dan like? How are the guys in Steely Dan? I mean, that's what I'm basically used to talking about. Right. Um, yeah, I thought that Get Back documentary it, it shined it it shined such a light on the creative process, while also uh, playing out this great drama that you didn't realize that it. I was with you. I was watching that first episode, and I was like, "This is boring. I'm getting bored. I don't see what everyone." But then once once George quits, the drama yeah. the drama just yeah. amps up, and then and then you can't you can't watch by the time it ended. I was like, I wish there was more, but I, I will say, I thought that, um, I thought Ringo came off the best in that. I, I thought, uh, he came off the most professional. He also seemed like when, when the three, when George, uh, when George, Paul and John were sort of at each other's necks, he seemed, he seemed like the most calming influence in in the room he seemed like he seemed like the one person that nobody had any issues with well apparently apparently ringo quit before george did right yeah i've heard because, that which i did not know because he was like 
give me a break. I mean, it, it's, I, I think he, he had his own identity to deal with. You know, it's tough. It's tough being in a band. I think it's really tough being, it's, you believe it's, it's tough being a Beatle. Who's going to say that? <laughs> I, I, it, you, you got that. You, you got that uh, sentiment watching the movie. You were like, it is, it actually, we, we, uh, Chip and I touched on this with, uh, we had the journalist Ashley Banfield on recently. And we were talking about how everybody wants to be rich and famous. And so I don't think people take into account, especially when you're, when you're Beatle in the, in the seventies famous, like you can't walk down the street. You can't go into a restaurant. Just it's uh, I've, I've said it before, but Bill Murray has this great quote. It was like, if you think you want to be rich and famous, try being rich first and see if that doesn't scratch all the itches. <laughs> yeah. It's funny you should mention that. Bill is an old friend, and wow. I've known him since the first, um, since Saturday Night Live. And he lives on Martha's Vineyard as well, and he and I play golf. Um, and he comes to, whenever he's on the vineyard, he comes to every Murata Brothers gig. Really? I have yeah, right. him. Oh, yeah. All right. And he well. sings, he comes and sings and sits in with us. And a couple of years, and listen, I've been, I've been around a lot of very, very famous people. Um, John Lennon being one of them, you know, mm-hmm. we did the dinner and Lennon, I was going to say he would handle being in public really well. I mean, I remember us going to dinner, Yoko, John, me, uh, a couple of the guys, we went to dinner a couple of times and he, he would figure a way not to get swamped with people. Okay. Hey, how you doing? So he, he, he knew how to do that. And look, it, it's really bizarre. And the irony is he was so good at that. And he's the one that gets shot and killed by a fan. Now, Billy, a few years ago, we went from the vineyard. We went to a race in New Jersey called the Haskell invitation. Yes. Uh, And we went, we went together. We flew down with Mac Haskell from the vineyard down to, 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 um, I forgot the, the, um, there the race the race course there but we and we watched the race and so billy so bill and i are hanging out i swear to god i've never seen anybody he and adam sandler are the two most people just act like they know them their whole lives yep. and we were trying so bill and i are sitting down he's sitting right across from me we're we're having lunch and it was this big sort of room that I guess they put us in this big, I don't know why. So we're in this room and we're having lunch. And every time the fork is just about to get to his mouth, somebody comes over. Oh, can, I, can we get a picture? And oh. he would stop. He would stop and he would take picture and he'd look over at me and he'd go, sorry, Rick, you know, and we, and we, and, 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 you know, he has a reputation for being a little bit um, acerbic or, or surly he's a little ornery ornery yeah and he was constantly it was constant to the point where i finally said okay that's enough he never stopped anybody not once never once i said listen please excuse us we're trying to eat and have a conversation and when we're done i, I i'm sure that he'll be happy to talk to you i feel i feel like i was i felt like i was his uh secure i was doing yeah. running security like you were for handling them yeah. yeah, and I did it as nicely as I possibly could, but it's rich and famous. Rich, he's right. <laughs> give me the money. Yeah. Give me the money. I don't care if you know who I am at all. Just give me the money. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. He gave this great interview on Howard. He said he said the fame part's nice when you're trying to get into a restaurant that you, you know you might yeah, not yeah. be able to get into or tickets to a ball game but he says other than that it's it's not super it's not super helpful and i guess you know people especially like people of mine and chips generation for me uh, meatballs was the first was one of the first movies i remember seeing and i was like oh that that bill murray's been my favorite actor since i was 8 you know, and, and there's millions of people that, that think the same way. And they do think, I think people do think when you're that famous that they know you through your work think, and that you owe that. them something. 
Yes, I, I, I feel really <laughs> terrible. I feel bad. You know, at one of the gigs we did this last year at the at the at the on the vineyard, my assistant. I'm very close with my assistant and her husband, and they have two kids, a seven-year-old and, and now a four-year-old. Um, and they came and they spent the they spent uh, about two months with me on the vineyard. Um, we all just stayed together and hung out. And they came to the gig and they brought Milo, the seven-year-old, and Bill shows up and Milo is way into Ghostbusters. Mm-hmm. Okay sees bill and he was very shy about it and billy sees my assistant christina and says hello and you know how are you and everything and introduces milo when the gig is over i'm playing on stage the gig is over and this is to give you an idea what kind of a guy he is so that people think he's not a, a, a jerk they said to me thanks so much for introducing um uh, you know you know for, for for telling billy that we're there and blah 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 said, well, what's going on? They said, look at this. And they t- take their phone. There's a video of him singing the Ghostbusters song with uh, the seven-year-old. Oh, that's amazing. And Milo is asking him, so do you like it with the girls in it or do you like it with the guys in it? <laughs> and, the, and he's talking to him. And I, when I saw Billy later, I said, I really, man, I said, I can't believe you. I'm so sorry. You know, I would never do that. I, 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 I respect your privacy and all that. I said, but that was so amazing. I'm such a hero to Milo now because, because I know um, the guy that's in Ghostbusters. He goes, Rick, what are you talking about? Happy to do it anytime, anytime. And, and that, that, that's really nice. Not everybody's like that. Right. Well, that's good because now I know you won't mind doing it for me this summer when I I come see you in Martha's Vineyard. Martha's Vineyard. (laughs) I am. I'm probably. You're probably going to end up staying at my house. (laughs) Well, if uh, if I see a video of you and Bill Murray singing the Ghostbuster theme, that's the end. I'm never introducing anybody. (laughs) I'll do it. I will bring uh, by that by this summer. I'll have a six and a half year old. I'll. I will. I'll teach her Ghostbusters if if that's what I gotta do to see the awesome deal. Is that? She'll learn it. Believe me, she'll learn it. It's like kids go through this level one after another after another of these from the from back then. They're they're they just fall in love with these same movies that you yeah. loved when you were young. Yeah, yeah, it's it's cool to see. Um, what I'm curious, what what album did you play on with John Lennon? I think it was double fantasy. You know, I kind of forget all the time. Isn't I know that- I played on a song called Meat City and uh, another, a ballad. And and um, uh, I can't remember, but I think it was double fantasy. See, that's and- the fact that you have this kind of career where you're like, I think it was double fantasy. Yeah. Uh, there was a ballad. Yeah. And it's like we're the- talking about John Lennon. That's that's. That's amazing. Yes, and, and, and I say it with all respect. It's my ignorance and stupidity. But when you're doing so much of it mm-hmm. every day, I remember um, uh, Tim, um, I ran into uh, from, uh, uh, oh, never mind. I My, my brain is. I'm right there with you. Rocky Horror Show. Uh, oh, Tim Curry. Tim Curry. Tim, I ran into Tim. So I was doing some stuff with Tim Curry here in L.A. Year, this is some years ago. He did a TV show, and I was doing the music to the television show. And uh, and it was partially because of Tim, because I had known him from New York. And he, he would say to me when I saw him, he'd say, I still can't get over the fact that I wanted you to play on my record. <laughs> couldn't because you were downstairs playing on John Lennon's record. <laughs> I said, Tim, let's cut it now. Let's, we'll cut it. We can recut it now. Yeah. Oh, that's great. I feel now, like, by, by the way, you were, you were talking about writing. Oh, go ahead. No, go, go Jim. You were talking about writing on a show with him. When did, when did writing music come about? And especially for, for TV. Actually, it goes back to what you were talking about earlier. Um, uh, work so i was getting so tired in recording studios it's just brutal it's brutal when you're doing it every day some guys just have that 
to, you know, it's okay to be locked up in a room and being on the road was really getting old for me. Mm-hmm. So I was, um, at that time dating, I then after that married an actress here in, in Los Angeles who know, who saw how unhappy I was and said, you know, she was doing well. And she said, look, if you don't want to go on the road, if you don't want to do this stuff, do what, do what you want to do produce. So I wanted to produce, I started producing some records. I produced a Brian Ferry record with, with Wadi Wachtel. We did it in Switzerland, Brian's first solo album, but I found myself and it was, and it was really a, a, a difficult experience, but really, but Brian was beyond talented. I mean, I, I, I was just having a hard time with personalities. You know, it's like a producing is like directing a movie. It's a babysitting job. Yeah. Mm-hmm. When you produce a record, a lot of times you're babysitting. I don't want to babysit. I want to get right into the music. I'm in my studio right now. I'm looking at, you know, I'm working on some writing and doing all this stuff right now in the studio. Okay. So I said, you know, I'd like to write for film or TV. So I built a little studio and I would go in there and work every day. And it sort of started going that way. And she said, you know what? Don't take these jobs. If you don't want to take the job, you don't want to go on the road. Don't go on the road. Don't go in the studio. And that's really kind of how it happened. Oh, that's great. And and, and walk me through that process. Like, are you are you given a a, sh- a a show or a script, and then you're building into it, or do you just kind of add? Well, it started all different. It was all different. It can go all different kinds of ways. Sometimes they just go. When you're first starting, someone might hear something that you did. Like I just wrote a bunch of stuff. Mm-hmm. I just started writing. I pre- I would create in my head a scene and write music to it, or I'd create a show and write a theme to it. And I was learning how to write. I'm not a I'm a terrible keyboard player. I mean, I can play the drums, but don't sit me down and let me play piano in your band. You'll I'll get fired in 20 minutes. But I know how to make the chords and I know how to create melodies and things like that and grooves and rhythms. I'm, you know, I'm born into, but you sit down and someone hears it. And um, I remember I was playing golf. I was musical director of a Tracy Ullman show. So I was playing drums on the show. Okay. Live directing the band, the musical director that was there left, get me the job. And I would write and do some arranging and some music there. One of the actors on the show and I, a guy named Sam McMurray, we became very good friends and we, we, we played golf a lot. And we were playing with a producer named Alan Kirschenbaum, who said to me, and, 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 Race, and, and Sam said to Alan, this is Rick Murata. Alan said, I know who Rick Murata is because he read the label. He read records like yeah, a lot of people. That's what do. we used to do. He was do. an audiophile. Yeah, yeah. I know who Rick Murata is. He goes, well, Rick's doing the music on our show. And, you know, you might be doing a show. And, and Alan said to me, you know, in about eight months, Oh, Alan was a Alan was a stand-up comic. I don't know if you know who he is. Zweeble? Now, no, Alan Kirschenbaum. Oh, right, 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 right. His father is Freddie Roman. Really? Wow. Wow. Alan, Alan passed away some years ago, but but we were very close. So so I so he says to me while we're playing golf. We both quit at the same time. I had to go to work. He had to go to work. And he said to me as we're walking off the golf course, he said, you know, Rick, in about eight months, I'm going to be doing a show, TV show, with my friend Phil Rosenthal. And we're going to be, you know, if you, would you be interested in doing the music? I'll, I'll meet with you to talk about it. I said, love to. He goes, okay, give me your number. And I didn't think much of it. Six months later, I hadn't seen the guy. Six months later, he called me for a meeting. I go in to meet with him, and I brought in a cassette I was dripping with sweat from, you know, I was nervous. I'd never auditioned for a gig or anything. I walk into his office and I sat down and we had a meeting about the show. It was called Down the Shore. It was a a sitcom about the Jersey Shore near where you guys are Mm -hmm. and where he was, you know, very familiar with and had a nice cast. It was a funny show. And we sat down at his desk in his office and he said, after the meeting, he goes, you know, I really like what you're saying. I'm hiring you. You've got the job. And I had a cassette with my music on it. And I took the cassette and I put it on the table on his desk and I slid it across the table. And I said, 
I would feel much more comfortable if you'd listen to the music I've written first and then hire me. And he oh. slid this cassette back to me and he said, <laughs> he went like this. He slid it back and he went, you could only lose the job. <laughs> I would have grabbed that cassette and <laughs> out of there. It would have seemed like a little dust ghost, like in Scooby-Doo when they run out of the room real yeah. fast. I would have been like, yoink. With, Rick, with, with all due respect, Rick, you dummy. Are you kidding me? <laughs> That, oh, that's you could only lose the job. How great of a quote is that? <laughs> it's an amazing, and he's right. It's it's but, absolutely right. But the, and that goes right back to what we were talking about at the beginning about who's a good hang, who seems like a a normal human being. Yep. Like, I still remember the first job, I, the first writing job I got. I I was suggested by a friend who was a writer, and he knew that I had the chops that I could write jokes. But I they brought me up for a meeting, and it was just like. I think they were just scanning to make sure I wasn't a crazy person. And it's like, <laughs> here you go. Okay, yes. Yeah. And, I, and I proved myself then. But it's, but that's great. And then how, how was that process then working working with, with Phil on that? Uh, it was great. I mean, it was my first um, – I had done Tracy, but this was the first one where I was writing the uh, interstitial every week. And, you know, it's sitcom. So it's diddly-diddly-diddly-diddly-diddly. Mm-hmm. And it was based, they had already, he had loved this um, Southside Johnny and the M. Asbury, Asbury Dukes. Song. Uh, um, I can't remember the name of it, but he had that as a theme already. So I write, had to write all the other music based on that theme. So it was pretty easy. And then there was, there would be source music. Like if there was a scene in a club or this, we would write stuff like that. But ultimately we became such good friends that when they would do some of the sketch things they would do, like they put me in some of the sketches. I remember once there was a thing where they had this big party down there and he put me in as a drunk guy, you know, I was younger than like a, like a drunken party guy hanging out. And I had a, I had a a thing of, uh, like a, a Chinese takeout hanging around my mm-hmm. neck with some chicken bones hanging out of it. And yeah. I walked around like a drunkard. And I remember Alan said to me that his mother said, saw the show. And she said, you know, the guy with the chicken thing around us with the, if I saw him walking down the street, I'd go to the other side of the street. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think I did a good job. That's good. I yeah, that's good. Yeah. Yeah. No, but it was really, really great. And my relationship with Phil and with, 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 with Alan went on for years. I did a bunch more shows for both of them, but that's when Phil Rosenthal then called me to do a show called everybody loves Raymond. Mm-hmm. And then that was a whole different ball. Right. Yeah. Wow. That's, that's they all sucked. <laughs> <laughs> um, oh, that's great. I'm just jumping around here. Oh, you know, um, Actually, because uh, you were talking about the Get Back documentary, and um, we have uh, Billy Amendola coming on later in the week from Modern Drummer yeah. uh, to talk, just to talk about. He said to say hello. I told him that we were talking. Yes, to of you course, today. of course. Give him my best. I saw him and his wife Chris mm-hmm. this last year on Martha's Vineyard. We went to lunch. Yeah, they were on for the, like the day or something, and we went to lunch down by the boat. Yeah, it was. I think it was this, this, I think it was this summer we ate outside um, with a very close friend of his who works for the post office and his wife that were in the music business as well. Uh, yeah, Billy's great. Billy's a boy. Billy's yeah, got he's, Yeah, he's coming on to talk about Get Back. Talk, but, but why? Talk to him about the Rascals. Yeah. Oh, the Rascals? Oh, the Young Rascals. He's like a, he's way in. He was calling me when they were putting that Young Rascals, um, uh, reunion together and i said to him i had worked with felix felix cavalieri before i had done felix's solo album and i said how do you think those guys are going to last they you can't put them back together again (laughs) no rick it's gonna happen it's gonna happen i think it happened for like three weeks it happened for a few (laughs) weeks and uh i know steven van zant was heavily involved and now now he's on twitter fighting with felix about it and I, I think it went uh, it went exactly as you expected. You know, I, I'll tell you a quick Felix story. I was doing Felix's. Now, I was a huge, huge fan of the Rascals because one of my closest friends growing up and a big influence on me as a drummer 
was Andy Newmark. We grew up together. We were roommates mm -hmm. at that Bevan Hotel in, in Larchmont, New York. He was my roommate. He had the next room. We were very close. His father was like a mentor to me. And so that's how I got introduced to the Rascals. And I used to listen to their music and practice playing to Dino Donnelly. And, and, and Andy just sent me this, this um, interview that Liberty DeVito did with Dino Donnelly last week. And I watched the whole thing. So um, uh, I end up doing Felix Cavalieri's solo album. And we're in the studio doing the solo album. And we do song. And I'm really quick, really quick. I'm also very impatient. So we do it. It sounds great. I'm not a drum machine. You want a drum machine? Go buy a drum machine. Yeah. I'm playing. If it's great, I don't want to play. I don't want to do take after take after take. Well, Felix is the kind of guy. It's his show. He wants to just do it over and over and over. And finally, I just said, I'm not doing it anymore. <laughs> what are you talking about? I said I'm not playing that fucking song again. It's great. <laughs> it's great. I'm not doing it. Big, big argument, and I just laid it down and said I'm not doing it. Period. And I refused. He to this day, if I see him, the first thing he wants to talk about is what a prick I am for <laughs> not. <laughs> and I said, what difference did it make? It was great. It sounded great. It's great on the record. It's this, that, and the other thing. So that was, you know, that was my Felix story. And I, and I, you know, he's right. He's the boss. But you know what? Just because you're paying me doesn't mean I'm a horse you can win. Right, right. It doesn't mean you don't know what you're doing. Yeah. I mean, there's you know, there's a thing when, like Chip, you were talking about it a minute ago. When you guys both know this as a writer, okay. I have a friend who's a really brilliant artist, a beautiful artist. She paints, she does murals. She's does really great. I'm a fan of her work. Before I met her, I knew her work. And she lives on Martha's Vineyard. And we used to go to, we, I'd see her in yoga class a lot. Um, her name is Margot Datz. She's really, really, really talented. And one day we're in yoga class and she was, um, she had gotten emotional in the class and afterwards I was sitting talking to her and we were talking and she said, she said the worst part of her job, our jobs, when we get hired creatively is when they turn you into a human paintbrush, meaning you're hired to write some jokes or you're hired to write some music or you're hired to do that mural on the wall and you do it and they walk in and they go, you know, it looks okay, but could you change? It's too purple over there. And how about we take the, the, the kid on the chair off that side. And now you got to go and redo it and redo it. Paint it yourself. Yeah. Especially if they, if they know what you do and that's what they hire you for. That's exactly right. That's exactly the point. Paint it yourself. Being a human paintbrush yeah. is a, it's, you know what? Some people are really good at it because, and I think that those are the people that don't believe in themselves. Right. Yeah. And it's like, give those people the, the, like, if you're paying them and you're, it's like, I want, I want to, them to bring the best that they can, not my specific exact vision. It just right. it doesn't make sense. It's like, right. why am I paying? I, I can see, I can see getting fired. Like, you know, right. Frankly, right. You're going to hire them to, to, to design your house or your building or Geary. You're somebody, you're going to design an architect to build. Oh, I don't, I don't really like it. I'm going to hire somebody else. You mm -hmm. know, you get somebody else. That's your prerogative. You could do that. That's subjective, but don't come stand over me and say, you could do it. You're telling me you could do my job better than me. Do it. Yeah. Yeah. I can't Absolutely. before be, I, I don't want to change the subject or anything, Ooh, but I go ahead. I don't know how long we have, but somebody wanted to ask me. I think it was you wanted to ask me about Al Cooper, and I wanted. Oh I yeah, wanted, yeah, yeah, I yeah. I want to make sure that I don't <laughs> that I don't. No, not, I'm just he. He was uh, my. I just asked because he was. Um, he lived down the street from my mom when she was a little girl. They were neighbors, and my grandfather was a band leader. 
he had his own orchestra. And my mom said that Al used to come like sit. He would just come watch my, my grandfather play the trumpet. And um, she said that Al would just always come to the house and sit and watch him and pick his brain and ask questions, you know. And then, you know, they, they moved away. My mom lost track of him. And next thing you know, now he's Al Cooper. She, she I think she puts a little more. I think she I think she gives my grandpa a little bit too much credit for his success, but uh-huh. yeah. That's okay. That's, that's fine. I'm I'm sure he has a lot to do with it. But um Al um when I first came up in the business in New York, Al was already established. And so it ended up that we they put together this kind of quote unquote supergroup in New York. It started out, it was originally Leslie West's band mm-hmm. called The Vagrants. And then Leslie went to Mountain and then The Vagrants turned into Brethren. And then Brethren saw me playing with somebody and I became the drummer. It was only three of us. And we went to LA and Dr. John played on our record. And yes. blah, blah, blah. Yeah, I wanted to talk to you about this, actually. Go ahead. And then we come back to New York. And while we're in New York, you know, we had to make money. And Al, we were a really good, really good band. And I, Al got... Stu Woods and I were the bass player and I and started a band, a trio called the Easy Does It Band. We did an album and we toured Al Cooper and the Easy Does It Band. Now, the thing about Al was Al was so big back then. He would play. It's interesting when you said that he was at your grandfather's and would watch him. <clears throat> that's the kind of guy he was. You know, he was he was he was immersed in music and he knew how to climb. He knew that the rungs of the ladder were not foreign to him. He knew where to be, when to be there. Like he played organ on those early Bob Dylan records. Mm -hmm. There's Frank, the French horn uh, on, you can't always get what you want. That starts the song. He was a trumpet player or something. And he started, he started blood, sweat and tears. And then Bobby Columbi took over, Blood, sweat, and tears. But I think Al was one of the guys instrumental in that, and he also did that unbelievable. Wait, this is before your time. It's this one of the first albums I just was amazed about was the Super Session. Yeah, album. with Stephen Stills and oh. Mike Bloomfield. They do the best season of the witch. That's my favorite version that I've ever how heard anybody was, do. How great was that? Yeah, I mean, it was great. So I remember the old days when we were reading newspapers you know that were actually tactile papers i the village voice i remember reading the village voice once and i look and every once in a while on the on the sides of the page of the village village voice they would write little things and once i'm reading and i see this little line going going longwise on the side of the page it said al cooper is god And I thought, geez, <laughs> you really, you made it when, when the village voice says you're God. Yeah. You made yeah. Wow. Um, oh, I think we lost. I think we, Chip, are you there? Sure. No. no, that's all right. He wasn't doing now that it's just the two of us, we can we can. He get was not interested it. in anything. <laughs> it was, I mean, he's really been dragging this whole thing down. Uh. And um, but you you mentioned you mentioned brethren. And uh, so I was just doing my research on you yesterday, and then then I went and I went back and started listening to the the album. They said that your second album's almost impossible to find, but it's actually up and streaming. It uh, is, yeah, it's up and streaming on YouTube Music. I listened to the song. I listened to most of it yesterday. Really? Uh, yeah, that uh, I can send you a link if you like. But it's, yeah, please, yeah, it's, please do. I know Doctor John wrote the first song, so I'm, I'm a Luke huge. Luke I think yeah. he wrote Luke Theroux. Yeah, I, I was listening to that, and then you had um, you had Mike Garson as your yep. piano player. So on the original album, Doctor John played piano, and uh, I remember we went to L.A. to do the album, and and. Um, uh, oh, Dr. John, yeah. it was the, the choices were we could either have Alan Toussaint play keyboard or Dr. John play keyboard. That's and not a bad, <laughs> that's not, a I bad, know. And that's we a ended coin up, flip. that's, so that's when I met Dr. John and we were friends, um, until he died. I, I gotta say that he was 
what an amazing, amazing character and musician that guy was. Yeah. Yeah. But, uh, but so Garson, but he didn't come on the road with us. He did the original album and he wrote the liner notes. And then Mike Garson, who was a total jazz guy, mm -hmm. Mike Garson was the keyboard player in the band. And, you know, he was so different than the rest of us. It was so weird. But he was macrobiotic at the time. So he got, he and his wife got me to become a macrobiotic. Uh, I was eating macrobiotic for about a year or six months or so. And, and, um, but he's a very, very talented musician. Yeah. Well, it's, I, it's funny cause I was listening. So I was listening to both these brethren albums and, um, it's like, you know, Mike Garson, of course, goes off to become David Bowie's piano man and, right. and playing such avant-garde and, um, ahead of its time piano. And then, but then I'm listening to these albums, which, which were, like maybe country rockish country rockish yeah, yeah that's right and and you would you would never you would never put you would never put those two together you know on one i'll tell you another interesting thing about the music business mm -hmm. on the first album there's a song called outside love um and the beginning of the song is just me playing a drum beat boom tap boom boom pop boom boom pop boom, boom. Boom, bah, that's how it starts. Just drums. So uh, a couple of years ago, I was doing this documentary called Sneakerheads, mm -hmm. which you you people can't see it, but there's a poster behind me with a documentary, and I'm writing the music for it for a producer friend of mine named David Friendly, and and um, Kathy Nelson's a musical director, and they send you a cue sheet, and on the cue sheet is there's music that's already in the music in the movie that they bought. Mm -hmm. Right, they own, and then I have to score the rest of the music. So, <clears throat> in this sneakerheads thing, which is about connect collecting sneakers, the doc is about collecting sneakers. They shoot in New York, Los Angeles, Japan, and I think somewhere in Europe. <clears throat> and while they're in Japan, they had used this hip hop song by a Japanese group, and they send me the cue sheet, and it has the name of the song, and it has the artist and who did it. And I see so-and-so, some Japanese name. And then it says, drum sample, outside love, brethren, 1970. Oh, wow. No. Right? Oh, wow. So I call Kathy Nelson, who's the musical music supervisor, and I tell her this. I said, Kathy, you're not going to believe this. And I tell her, she goes, what? Hold on. And she's because she's this big music supervisor, she goes online, she goes, oh, my God, Rick. Outside love, brethren, you, yes. She said, here's the list of samples of where that's been used. It's, at one point it was written, the most used drum sample of the 90s. Oh, no. Biggie Smalls, Tupac, um, Bush, uh, one after another, after another, after another. It lists all the places. Yeah. I've never been paid. <laughs> was gonna ask <laughs> a penny a fucking penny oh no and it was my it was i produced i right. was one of the producers of the record that was my groove that i came up with and you know it's it's a groove but it's mine i'm playing it yeah not a dime but they have to list it you know why they have to list it somebody's making a shitload of money off of that yeah yeah and then i find out later that and I haven't pursued it or anything. That a, I think it's a tribe called Quest actually used it so much they have a an, a, a CD of drum samples that they use. It's on. Oh wow! Wow. Do you do you feel? Um, I I get being angry at like where the fuck's my money, but do you is there is that overshadowed by like holy shit something I created went on to make this much amazing music like it no i feel <laughs> i don't feel i don't have to i don't feel like i had to prove myself right i feel i already i don't mean to be sound egotistical but i already think that i've done some of my best work has been done and if i come up with something better writing wise or drum playing drums wise 
that's a bonus. Right. But there are certain things like there are certain songs I played on that you guys never even heard that I thought were really good. Like I get a lot of people <coughs> talk to me about playing on Steely Dan's records and playing on Peg, mm-hmm. for example. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Which is great. But there's an obscure song I played on on a James Taylor album that didn't do very well. And the album was called Dad Loves His Work. And the song is called Hour That The Morning Comes. And I thought that's some of the best playing that I've done song-wise. I like playing songs. Mm -hmm. I don't feel like... (coughs) Excuse me. I don't feel like um, I need that recognition. I'd love... the yeah. check yeah yeah sure yeah look at a certain point <clears throat> you make a decision and i remember when i was making there were some nights when i first started playing drums where i was so happy and i never felt <clears throat> this kind of satisfaction where i was in a band like a 10-piece band and we go play for the door and of course the guy deducted money and i literally remember one gig i walked out i had change in my hand oh geez yeah it was like 18 or 50 cents something like that Mm -hmm. in my hand and i remember looking down and going i could do this for the rest of my life (laughs) (laughs) that changes that fast yeah Mm -hmm. yeah because once you're doing it every week and you're having trouble putting food on the table. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And you're getting drained and people are sucking the life out of you musically and artistically. Pay, you want to get paid. Absolutely. So I, I, I think that artists whose stuff is really good deserve to get paid. I think that the music, musicians are the least compensated in general. The really, really good musicians are the least compensated of most of the arts. And it's probably because I, I, I always remember you're a, let's say you're a painter. Okay. And I, I know some of these people. I don't want to even mention their names. I'm, I've made this painting here. It's six by eight, whatever. I'm going to charge $175,000 for that piece of work. Now you either buy it or you don't buy it. Right. Mm-hmm. Somebody comes up and says, I don't mind. I'll give you 50 grand for it. Okay, here's 50 or don't take it. But you get to name your price and you get to hold out for that. In the music business, a lot of the guys in my business, what makes it bad being a musician, there are so many wannabe musicians. They'll do it for free. Yes. Yeah. It's the same way. It's the same exact thing. Comedy comedy. is the exact same thing. Yeah. Yep. They'll do it for nothing. Yep. Mm -hmm. And the guys that hire them go, they, they don't care whether it's better. Right. Some people come and say, I'll pay you anything. I want your groove on my record. Other people say, well, it's not you. There, I remember I was in Nashville doing some albums. I used to go to Nashville a lot. And there was this guy in Memphis. I don't remember his name. But the guys I was working with in Nashville, you know, we were doing Waylon's record. We were doing Susie Boggess. I had Alabama. I can't remember one after another after another. And and Leland Sklar, a bass player, and I were going back and forth to Nashville for like two or three years. And the guys in Nashville, <clears throat> Reggie Young and um, a couple of the other guys were telling me about this producer in Memphis. And he would hire guys and pay them peanuts. And if he didn't like it, he would say to them, there are guys lined up behind you. Yeah. There's a there's a line of guys standing behind you that'll take this gig for less money. And it's true. Yep. Mm-hmm. So I said, fuck this guy. <laughs> so they called him and they won't put me on the phone to tell him to go fuck himself. They were so happy <laughs> that somebody wanted to fuck you. You could never. They, I said, I don't want to do that. Well, we're going to tell him, fuck you. You can't. Our Murata's not going to work for you no matter what the fuck you think. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's, oh, great. that's great. That's great. <laughs> well, listen, Rick, um, thank you so much for. I feel like we barely. Uh, got to the tip Barely of the iceberg the surface, with you. Yeah. I, I would love it. always it. happens when you're as old and you got as much stuff going as I do. People, you know, they got Jesus. We, we could have talked about when you uh, got arrested for whatever you did wrong. <laughs> well, I, I, Oh, do you want to tell us that real quick? 
No, I never got arrested. <laughs> um, I, 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 I hope, I hope that you would fun. I, I would love for you to come back on because yeah, we'd love to have to you sometime it. again. Happy to do it anytime. Okay. Happy to do it anytime. This was this was fun for me. I, you know, I stopped doing um, uh, interviews for a really, really long time. Actually, it was because of an interview I did many years ago for Modern Drummer, which was Billy uh-huh. Andola's. Uh, he was, I don't think Billy was there at the time. This is a long, long time ago. And I did this interview and um, they, it was a print interview. And when I read it, they had edited it and it was, and I was getting calls from guys going, what did you say that? Why did you, I said, I didn't say that. And you didn't mention me. Well, yes, I did mention you, but they didn't put you in the article. And I just said, you know what? I'm not doing this anymore. But the past few years, I've been doing these podcasts mm-hmm. and things, and and it's been fun. I, I enjoy it. And hopefully you can get, and I mean, we don't really edit much. Like, you're getting your point of view out. There's not going to be that editorial process where it's like your words are used against you in some way. Like, I've seen right. that well, in so it's many in Whatever interviews. you guys, I'm at the point yeah. now. Who cares? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Tell people I was a prick. Who? <laughs> What am I going to do? What are they going to come to my house and say, Oh, you ruined my life. I, <laughs> I know nobody cares. You just right. having, yeah. We're just having fun. Oh, I'm happy great. to do it anytime. Yeah. Well, we can do it. Maybe we can do it in person this summer when Ken and I stay yeah. at your place and Martha's sure, in Martha's. Sure. We'll sure. be there for the month. We'll be there for the month. So just you know, I anytime. to tell you, I yeah. put a teepee outside. That's, that's where everybody stays. That's, per- that's perfect. That's perfect. That works. I have, <laughs> a, right, I have a, a kid though. Yeah. Real pleasure. Yeah. Well, thank you. Thank you. Thanks again so much. It was great. Anytime. Anytime. Yeah. Thank anytime. you so much. I'm gonna te- oh. I'm gonna text you a link to that album too. As soon yes, as I was just gonna say that. Yes. Thank you. Yeah, you're thank welcome. You guys. Yeah. All right. Great. Uh, thank you. Yeah, Chip. You got anything you wanna throw in real quick? Uh, just uh, follow me at Chip Chantry. Uh, April first in Philly. I'm doing a uh, I'm doing a big show at a theater in Philly. I'm, I'm running my hour, so but you just follow me at Chip Chantry on Twitter or Instagram to find out all about that. How about you, Ken? Um, yes. Uh, where am I? Saturday, March nineteenth. I am headlining Atlantic City Comedy Club. Nice at the Claridge Hotel, and then for Pennsylvania. I will be uh, March 4th. I am at the Machunk Opera House with Rich Voss. Okay. Yeah, and it's, in like, it's in like Allentown area. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then Saturday, Saturday, March 5th, I am at the uh, Newtown Theater also with nice. Rich Voss. Oh, that's great. Very good. Well, uh, th- that was so much fun, Ken. And uh, yeah, hopefully you guys enjoyed it. And remember, uh, follow us at uh, rock and roll pod. Uh, and, uh, you know, let us know, do you have any other suggestions? Do you have questions for us or, uh, you know, people that you'd want us to interview if we can get a hold of, or, uh, yeah, and let us know. And of course, if you could, you know, of course, uh, subscribe and, you know, throw us a quick rating or a review. It, re- it really does help. All right. Thanks everybody. See you next week. <laughs> <laughs>